Welcome to the Coast Talk Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nick Swinburn, otherwise known as Coast Talk. I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. Whether it's sports, tech, food, fitness, I've got a bunch of passions. I've also been fortunate enough to invest in some of my favorite sports teams. Along the way, I've met a bunch of great people, whether athletes, entrepreneurs, executives, and we hope to dive into their stories on our show. You'll hear backstories, successes, and failures throughout our discussions. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoy listening to the show. This is Coast Talk Talk. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Coast Talk Talk podcast, where we deep dive into the passion projects of the best athletes and entrepreneurs every week. On today's show, I sit down with Harry Sal, entrepreneur and investor. Harry, how you doing? I'm well. How about yourself? Good. I'm really excited to... Um, go into some of these uh, some of this training you've been doing later in our episode that we were just discussing before the show okay of the uh, yeah that's uh I didn't know about this and I'm, I'm fascinated by it well yeah welcome to the show let's uh I guess if you want to give a quick uh, intro background of yourself how you got started as an entrepreneur as short or as long as you'd like sure so I'm originally from Taiwan I was born and raised in Taiwan moved to San Francisco uh, actually Oakland when I was about 16 years old. You and I being partners in the Warriors, there's actually a funny story. I remember when I first went to Oakland, I would drive by the, uh, the Oracle, and then I would always see this Warriors versus something else. And at that time, it didn't click to me that there was an NBA team called the Golden State Warriors. I just <laughs> thought it was like the ultimate Warriors in the WWF. I'm like, how is the Warriors always in Oakland? Did you go to a game early? Never, never. Never been to a game. <laughs> Uh, That's crazy. Mine, uh, real quick, my, my backstory on that was when I was living in England and before I moved to America and my dad came over here and he went to a Warriors Rockets game and he brought back two buttons, like those metal buttons with a little pin on the back. Mm-hmm. And I was just fascinated by the logos. So when we moved over, we moved to the Bay Area and I was like, where's the Warriors? Where's the Rockets? And he's like, the Rockets are far away, but these are your Warriors. So I was, uh, <laughs> I was hooked ever since. Funny. All right. So, um, yeah, I moved to the Bay Area when I was about 16. Then moved down to, uh, I graduated high school in, in the Bay Area, then moved down to L.A. Uh, and went to USC. After SC, worked a year and then immediately went into uh, my graduate degree. Uh, I went to Cambridge in England and got my MBA. Then came back to the U.S., uh, started my first Internet business called Show Expo when I was about 20 eight years old um that was the whole the whole idea behind it was hey you know trade shows are great people trade information they get brochures they get to see videos etc but they're kind of expensive for the exhibitors i you know i've always gone to trade show i'm like this there's got to be a better way to do it so i created what i called a online trade show where you know to think about this was 1997 where people can download brochures, they can click a button to make calls with the company, they can look at the presentations, et cetera. It was okay. You know, I got on the front page of Wall Street Journal. But the problem with that show is uh, as soon as it started, there's no end date, right? So once you start, it was impossible to to sell any booth, you know, after, after the beginning of the show. So that was a kind of the first failure experience. Then I went to work for this company called um, GoTo.com, which then then became a company called Overture Services, uh, which ultimately became Yahoo Search Marketing. So Overture was the company that pioneered sponsored search that uh, Google has really sort of uh, done well on with uh, AdWords. Um, So at GoTo, I was in the business development team and uh, we had access to all the data and we're, we, we were able to see, you know, top spenders in our marketplace. And what we realized, my partner and I realized was, why the heck are like six out of the top 10 sites, coupon sites? And so we looked at their business model. We're kind of like, this is kind of weird. You know, they advertise on search engines. You land to a site that gives you a coupon code. Somebody clicks and then you go off to the e-commerce site. So a, a, a typical example would be, you know, you would go to, uh, let's say, Gap. You're shopping on Gap. And at checkout, you see enter coupon. And what do you do? You open another browser. You search Gap coupon, right? You go to a site. You grab a coupon. You go. 
And that business runs off of affiliate programs. So we're like, okay, well, this is kind of easy to start. So we actually uh, uh, just went off and started a, 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 our, bis- our business with $10,000. I remember that the, you know, I used this site. I can't remember the site where you can find people to outsource projects to. And there's this guy in the Ukraine, a company called Program Ace, that developed our first site for $4,000. We <laughs> launched, and then the first day, we generated one penny of revenue. <laughs> I looked at my partner and I'm like, what the heck are we doing? You know, but, you know, luckily, I think the first month we made $1,500, second month, $3,000, $6,000, $12,000. And before you know it, like four or five months down, you know, we had already replicated our salaries and we we're like, okay, well, we can go off and, and go off on our own. So we did. And, you know, a couple of, min- uh, a couple of years later, we, we were kind of tapped out. We're like, okay, well, it's doing fine. You know, generating a couple million dollars of revenue. I'm um, sorry, a profit. All, um, all, um, all from that 10, 10K or did you have to raise more money? All from that 10K. We've never raised another penny. We were profitable in, from the first month on. Nice. Okay. So we then said, well, this is kind of, we're kind of tapped out because you, we would advertise on words like Dell coupon, Gap coupon, Coldwater Creek coupon. But there's a finite amount of e-commerce words that you can advertise on. So we then said, well, why don't we create a, create a, uh, a, a comparison shopping engine where we can input, you know, 20, 20 million products that the entire e-commerce space aver- uh, sort of sells, right? And then advertise on these words because what we're really good at is advertising. So we did that. You know, I think we went from a $7 million business to like maybe, uh, you know, one that did $30 million in revenue or something like that. It, we grew. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, it kind of stabilized. And we're like, oh, what, what, what else can we arbitrage on? And then we created a bunch of content sites where, you know, we would be able to advertise for, you know, on everything. You know, it kind of opened the spectrum of what you can, you can advertise on. So it's no longer restricted to merchants' names or product names. It could be a page on methylesioma, right? You know, all kinds of stuff that we could advertise on. So I think five years into our business, we sold our business to a company called ValueClick uh, in 2007. Uh, we took all cash, and this all happened one week before the uh, countrywide mortgage meltdown. So got lucky. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, since then, I have invested in a lot of different businesses. You know, I think we, we met each other in 2010, right, when we... Yeah. Uh, First got into the Golden State Warriors, and I think you the, the, the rest is uh, history. <laughs> the okay, so going back a little bit, so Show Expo, like what what was the process of starting this? Right, you're young, not much experience. You just decide there's an opportunity, and then what happens? Then I think you go in without knowing anything, and this is why I think entrepreneurs, a lot of entrepreneurs, are young. Because you really don't know what the hell you're getting yourself into, right? So, you know, this was straight out of my MBA. I think we probably generated, you know, half a million dollars of revenue or something like that, which was fantastic. Was was it just you? Was there other people? That was just me. So I started, I don't know how much I started. I can't remember how much I started. Maybe 30,000, maybe 50,000, right? So as soon as we were, we were pitching leading up to, the quote-unquote startup show, right? Um, and then we were collecting income, and then, you know, of course, we got expenses to pay. But, yeah, it was it. it I remember in the beginning, we were really selling off of, like, Photoshop images right? because we didn't have a site. But you got to do what you got to do to sell. So, yeah. So on the second project, when you said you hired a, a company in the Ukraine to build the site, I mean, they probably built the site and, and mailed you a CD? No, no, no. No, this was in 2001. So, 2001. So, it was maybe just the beginning of cloud. There was no cloud uh, computing yet, but I think they probably hosted on their server somewhere in the Ukraine. Hey. It was super slow, but they really mocked it up. It worked. It created a backend. I'm like, holy shit, all of this for $4,000, right? <laughs> and we're yeah. in business. It's funny. I would look at, when I look at your, um, I was looking at your LinkedIn earlier, and even just the go-to logo is like so much nostalgia for the yeah. for the brands of that time. And then also, what a trip that like at the time this was all cutting edge, at least 
you know, that was for me, like everything was new about the internet. And now you look at it and it's like, it just seems uh, so long ago, but it was interesting. Uh, it's almost, it's always interesting when you look at like the time between, like there's almost like this cycle that you have to, like getting in at that early stage of that then gives you the opportunity while it's still, everything's open to jump into the next thing versus. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, like, you know, even though Show Expo was my first failure, I, I would, I think if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't have gone to go to, and I, I wouldn't have learned the, the industry. So it is all part of your path, right? And every yeah. part of your path, failures or successes all contribute to who you are. So that's why they have the Wayback Machine, so you can you can go and go and reminisce. So okay, so you as you're growing, how how is your team growing? So this was early, well, I think 2001, 2002. Uh, we were still relatively small. I think I think I. I think in the second year, we probably did something like $7 million of revenue, $2 million of profit, but we were still watching our expenses uh, carefully. And I had a friend who was generous enough to lend us a little bit of his office in Shanghai. Uh, and my mom had just moved to Shanghai uh, then. So I thought, okay, well, I'll go to Shanghai. You know, things are, you know, China's developing. Labor is relatively inexpensive. So we went and we hired a few people and uh, we never looked back. I think when we sold the business four years later, we probably had something like 200 engineers in China. Wow. So, yeah, that was, that was fast growing. I, re- I just remember we were, we were in a new office every single time I went to China. <laughs> All the way through, no investors. No investors. Wow. Well, I'm sorry. We did take... A few people, a couple million dollars, very late into the round of the, yeah. the business, uh, but yeah. So we really like started it with ten thousand dollars. Yeah, and and back then it's like kind of a, f- a first business. Your your co-founder was someone you knew, but as you hired, are you hiring like you know people in your kind of age group that are just eager to be, do a little bit of everything, or are you recruiting specialists that are more ex- with more experience than you? We absolutely never hire the specialists or the professionals because we never had enough money to do so. Yeah. And I think in hindsight, it probably is good, right? Like you, you, you're an entrepreneur. You probably have to bootstrap your business. Yeah. And you've probably met a lot of people who raised a lot of money whose VCs tell them, go hire the best people. Well, yeah. you know, they also burn through their cash. And if, you know, and as an entrepreneur, you know that things often takes iterations, right? It's not like you do it one shot and everything works. Everything often doesn't work, except in my first business, kind of everything worked <laughs> on one one. Uh, but it usually doesn't happen like that. Yeah, I had, I guess, I kind of have a, like two perspectives on it because a lot of things I I never adapted, right? So in the beginning, I would just literally hire, with Zappos, it was like, Oh, I went to college with this guy. I went to high school with this guy. Oh, this person we met him. They, they seem cool, you know. And so it was very much like that. Um, like you said, like the enthusiasm for not knowing what you don't know, which let you just kind of charge ahead. But there was also some, you know. And and then as we got a little farther along, you you'd kind of have the understanding. Well, some some people will develop the skills, which will make them just as effective at the next stage, and some people won't. You know, they were they had the enthusiasm gets them so far, but then there's a gap in like the knowledge and the experience to get to the next level. But what was interesting when I look back at Zappos is we had a really hard time. We like embraced that so much, whether probably, whether probably not really on purpose. I think it was also, it's a little easier to find, oh, this person's cool. This person's energetic. This person's smart. We can put them in any role than it is to find. I think there's a little more discipline. I realized as I get older, there's a little more discipline that has to be in place in order to attract, obviously, experienced talent. And so the only time it became an issue is kind of where I'm conflicted with it is, is throughout Zappos, there was times where we really needed, like, we really needed people with more experience in a specific area. We needed the adult in the room, but it yeah. wouldn't work because we, we we weren't used to that. And I've and I look back at what I've done since Zappos, and a lot of times I've I've done that same thing of you remember that like kind of fearless like energy. And so you try to bring in you know, relatively unexperienced younger people that you see that in. And it's not, um, it's not as easy to replicate as, as I thought it would be, you know, at times like you, we definitely, you know, always, there's always like 
a large element of luck and timing and all that. But it's interesting that it's, uh, yeah, just one thing, something that I've always kind of go back and forth on now is like, wow, it's, it was, um, it's not that easy to, uh, to find the right people. And, and so, you know, it's, uh, it's yeah, amazing. It just kept going. I don't think there's a perfect cookie cutter way that works for everyone. Right. It's not yeah. like, it's not like, Oh, if you have a great education, you're going to be successful. Well, so then every single person from Harvard or Stanford should be successful. That's yeah. not the case. Oh, you should hire the professionals to do this. Well, that's not true. Like that means like everyone who is not experienced will not be successful. It's just, you know, it all depends. Yeah. I think it's just situational. It really is a lot like basketball. If you think about the Warriors, it's like you need, um, if everyone wants to, you know, take the last shot and, and be the star, it's not going to work. Yeah. If no one's capable of taking the last shot, if someone's out, it's not going to work. Like you need that right blood. But then if everyone's just too content getting their check and, and sitting on the bench, that's not going to work either. So it's yeah, uh, totally right. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you get to this point, you decide we've taken this as far as we can take it. Um, you, you time your exit perfectly. And then I guess what, what was interesting is without really having investors, you decided, did you decide to start investing right away or did you go on to starting more companies? Yeah. So um, when I retired, I just, I'll just tell you some facts. Uh, funny. It's just side, you know, interesting side notes. Retired? Uh, well, 26. I, I was 36 years old. Right. Yeah. I joined a country club in LA. Um, I started golfing with a lot of people who were probably 30 years older than me. And then it's like, yeah. well, it's kind of, kind of boring. So let me, uh, let me call my uh, ex-colleagues, right? See if they want to golf with me. And then it's like, gosh, you know, it takes time for them to take time off. And then when we go play golf, it's too expensive for them. So I end up paying for golf. Uh, I feel like I owe them something because they're taking vacation days off. I'm like, <laughs> shit, you know, forget it. I, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then, uh, you know, I, at that point, my mindset was, well, if I'm not going to retire at 36, I'm going to have to retire at 66 or 76. At some point, I'm going to have to retire. So why don't I spend a lot of time with my kids and my wife? And and that part is great. And of course, every time when you have a liquidity event, is you know this, somehow every single person on earth who needs money uh, figures out that you are someone who invests money and you get a lot of opportunities, right? Yeah. So I started investing in all kinds of different companies and uh, vetting yeah. them all. You're, are you vetting them all yourselves? Do you have anyone helping you vet them? Generally, it's myself, and I think I've we've done I've done okay. But what I've also realized in the last ten years is feels like the ones that the the, the way to make substantial amount of money is is if you put yourself out there, invest the time and effort yourself. Versus just investing in somebody else, right? Because whenever somebody approaches you with an investment opportunity, it's not like you're taking 20% or 30% of their business, right? You're taking no. 3%, 5%. And it really doesn't matter how, well, of course it matters. If it's $100 billion, it changes, you know, change, you know moves to dial. But often, oftentimes, you know, people have a small exit and your 3% of something small doesn't move to dial. Right. Yeah. So I think around 2010, maybe three, four years after I sold my business, um, my partner and I started another business called a love it. And that was kind of a, a, um, a Pinterest, uh, a site inspired by Pinterest, uh, with monetization. Right. So we, we, we filed patents on like how you monetize certain tiles, but you know, that was a hard one. We had hundreds of thousands of people using the site every day, but it just just couldn't get the organic growth to work. You know, it's no fun when you're writing personal checks for hundreds of thousands of dollars every single month, right? No. <laughs> and I don't. I'm, I'm guessing you've probably done that. And you know, after a certain amount of time, you're like, forget this. You know, this is not the way to work. So no. in um, 2013, 2013. We started another company called Juvo Plus, where we saw an opportunity to leverage the success of marketplaces like an Amazon and then, you know, source our own products. And again, I think we may have put in maybe a million dollars in the beginning. And we've grown that business organically to where, you know, this year we'll probably do over a quarter billion dollars profitable for, you know, four or five years. Um, and that business is still growing at 
probably 30% a year and it's about to, you know, accelerate on its growth. So uh, now, at, that was just that one round also. Well, we ended up putting in prior to the end of last year, we put in a total of 10 million, but you know, due to the supply chain tariffs, et cetera, we've had to put in 20 more million dollars last year. Yeah. Uh, but that's a quarter billion dollars off of $30 million total, total invested. Wow. Yeah. So your so your formula is you got to find something where you put money in once and then it grows like crazy. It's a perfect formula. I think we our formula is don't we don't mind starting with something small, but the revenue has to be visible quickly. Um, and then all we focus on is think about how to scale. Right. Yeah. We don't want a pie in the sky business where I'm going to lose money for three years to generate organic growth without knowing how to make money off of that. That's, you know, plenty of people have done that. That's just not something we understand and we can do. And and for all our businesses, we've kind of funded ourselves, bootstrapped them. So that's in our DNA. Do you think that because you've had success building profitable businesses that you give the benefit of the doubt or have you given the benefit of the doubt at times to other investments you've made where because you're you're thinking of it from your perspective right like i know we're starting a business this is what we're focused on and so you you know someone pitches you on their on their deck and you're you're starting to think about okay here's what's going to happen for them but you're doing it from your mindset right first and then but the reality which i which i think is way many more people are of the mindset of like well we're raising this money to grow. We don't exactly know how, um, we don't exactly know why, and we're not quite sure what the numbers are going to look like. But we're not going to put that in the deck. In the deck, we're going to put very vague things. And then we let investors, because I've been involved in some companies where I'm like, you know, what is going, what are, what are they thinking? And then, and you realize, I think a lot of it is like, no, you got it. You get the people on the other side based on their own experience, interpreting what you're saying in the way they would do it. So for you, I think it'd be interesting because you would either you would either immediately be like, no, I, I'm not interested in this, not interested in that, because I've built a business based on profit. I understand what it takes and you don't have what it takes. Or you would look at kind of a vague thing and think, oh, yeah, I see an opportunity there. But they may not be operating to the same standard. Yeah. Well, I, I would say that very few opportunities you look at are profitable, are run by a seasoned entrepreneur and and has any kind of scale right Um, and it's also kind of what the market is right like think about 2021 everybody was investing in anything with with no revenue nothing right and people somehow were able to rationalize everything so if i were to use my hat only and say like, well, you have to be profitable, you have to be scaling it, and you have to have bootstrapped it. Well, I would have invested nothing, which actually is what I've done for the last three, four years. I haven't invested in anything because yeah. I think those are all kind of irrational. Yeah. And like you said, for me, it's different. So initially I got approached by a bunch of things and then I just didn't really invest in many things. Maybe partially because I thought to myself, you know, Zappos was a great experience, but it was a strange experience. It took a lot of money and it took a lot of luck and it took a lot of these, the ball bouncing the right way. And at the end, we still weren't very profitable, right? When we're doing a billion dollars in sales, we're making like a $10 million profit or something, you know? So, and it was always like credit lines going to, you know, explode. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. And so maybe that was, that experience has made me, made me leery of things. And then I also felt like, well, I don't have, I I never was super interested on the financial side of things and the, and, um, you know, I probably didn't maximize my skill set in certain areas. And so I looked at it like, eh. I think it'd be, you know, I think the only thing I can follow is, which I think is a little bit of what you're saying is like the, um, like an idea that I see, something that I see, a vision that I think is possible. Um, and then just try to have your own internal radar of like, is this fun? Is this a small, fun passion project? Or is this something worth pushing further on? And I've actually gone the opposite approach where it's almost made me gun shy to raise money um, because I like that freedom of, uh, I mean, you're not raising money because you don't need it. I'm not raising money because I'm like, uh, I, I, I want to wait. I want to get to that point where I'm so confident and see such a clear vision that yeah. I would raise money. And it's kind of, and that's why most of my investments that I've made have been limited to sports, some better than others, but like, it's all at least been some, some logic, something I'm passionate about, something I'm, um, something I'm interested in. How did you get introduced to the Warriors in the first place for that? When we, uh, when we got in that okay. deal? Um, 
So uh, a partner of mine, a, a separate partner, uh, we were looking at uh, this thing called Arena Football. I don't know mm-hmm. if you, you remember that. Yeah, I, I, had the, I think it was the Sabercats. In, in yeah, I don't know if they're still in existence. Uh, but we hired a sports banker, and uh, he brought the commissioner. We talked, and very quickly, it, you realize, boy, there's no money in this. You're just, you're just going to lose your pants doing this. Yeah. And then we looked at buying the LA Sparks, and uh, you know the numbers weren't too interesting. Yeah, that's the um, WNBA team. WNBA team. Oh, and pull that before you go. So, why? How did you start looking at sports opportunities in the first place? Well, I think we exited the business, and we're like, okay, well, now we have some money on our hands. You know, why don't we own a sports team? Were you passionate? Were you? That was kind of it. Arena, arena football, and WNBA. It's they're different I'll tell you what I was interested in. Yeah. I was always a Clippers fan. I was a Clippers fan for <laughs> 20-some years before we bought into the Warriors. Wow. And for the first three years, you probably rarely saw me at a Warriors game because it was still hard to for me to become a Warriors fan, <laughs> even after we invested. So that took, took two, three years. <laughs> but uh, So I, yeah. from what I'm gathering is everything we've gone over, your biggest accomplishment might have been staying a Clippers fan for so long. It was a rare... <laughs> that was a rare loyalty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so going back, so we looked at the Sparks, and it wasn't very interesting, but I stayed stayed in touch with the, the banker, and it turns out that he his wife is the niece of CJ, Craig mm. Johnson. Yeah. And, and uh, he's like, you know, they're buying the Warriors. Uh, do you want to uh, go have a look? I said, like, sure. Flew up, met Joe. And I think we agreed on a deal that day. So wasn't right. much, much, much com- convincing. <laughs> yeah. And in retrospect, the only thing I should have done is invested more. I know. Maybe. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> at the time, at the time, I mean, the Warriors, I mean, the jokes about the Clippers and obviously, you know, the Clippers and the Warriors were both really bad for a long time. Then they became heated rivals for a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember thinking, it was like, hey, you're going to get a ring. It's like, and it was just a laugh, like, hey, I would love for the Warriors to get a ring one day. My favorite team of all teams while, you know, growing up. But like, come on, that's never going to happen. And so, you know. I remember asking probably three or four people in my sort of universe, hey, do you want to invest? And the answer, I don't know if you did the same. The answer was, why the hell would I want to invest in a sports team? None of them make money. Um, I got like, I just got more, you know, ah, it's a vanity project. You don't really seem like a vanity project guy. I'm like, well, I'm not even going to be the main guy. There's not going to be much vanity involved for me. It just, this seems like, you know, if, if there's going to be something I'm going to be passionate about, it's it's going to be this. But the, um, okay, so we get, we get in the Warriors. We start off a little slowly, but then, you know, we kind of have this meteoric rise, franchise valuation going up, you know, the, the brand growing and growing and growing. Um, and you see quite a few people um, ourselves included, then kind of start looking elsewhere. Like, oh, what other sports investments are out there? So from there, your next sports investment was LAFC? Uh, LAFC. So I think the Warriors were playing the Clippers maybe in 2023 or 24. I'm sorry, 2013. Well, 2013 or 2014. Uh, Joe, Joe, I'm sorry, not Joe, uh, Peter Goober, and I sat ne- next to each other, and I, we were just chatting. And I was like, well, it's kind of, you know, soccer has got to be the next big thing. And Peter is, you know, Peter Goober says, okay, okay, I, I'm going to tell you something, but you can't talk about it. Uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm trying to put together a group to, uh, to, to invest in a team in L.A. Uh, and I said, well, I'd love to be in it. And that was that. So he brought me in. Um, always love working with Peter because he is, has always been incredibly kind to me. Um, we did the deal and, uh, that was my soccer deal. And you and met Peter through the Warriors or you knew Peter before the Warriors? Through the Warriors. But yeah. for some reason, he just, he and I click a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, so he brought me to that deal. Um, and then we also invested in a esports team called, uh, I forgot about that. Shit, what's, what's the name? <laughs> you forgot you forgot about it too. But the company name is Exiomatic. Um 
Well, you're also an investment in gold. You're also invest. Oh no, you had to. You guys had to step out of the Golden Guardians meetings with the Warriors, right? That's right. That's right. That was so weird. Yeah, I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. And then of course we're in the uh, we're in the team in Denmark. FC Helsingor. Yeah. Yeah. Which. which <laughs> well, that's an interesting learning experience. Yeah, that's been a good learning experience. Couple of what a rele- relegation, upper division, no relegation, upper then division, pro- and promotion, then almost promotion. The um, and quite expensive along the way. The um, okay, so but so so LAFC, and it's funny because right because because the Warriors, neither of us are super really actively involved, right? It's like it's it's awesome to like hear things. You have a couple of meetings to go to a year. Um, you know, Joe and the team are great at making everyone feel part of the group, sharing information, get to sit in some meetings ahead of like the draft or or things like that, but not really, you know, guiding the guiding the ship. And then that, to me, that was one of the interesting things about Helsingor. Um, and I think that COVID really hurt that as well, because went over to Copenhagen once and then couldn't go for a long time. Right. And so it kind of uh, was interesting there. But LAFC, you seem to be much more... Um, much more involved, a little bit. You've, well, you've. I'm still, I'm still not. Well, I'm not actively involved, but I do know the team uh, much, much better than I know the uh, the Warriors. And I think, I think one of the reason, and, and my sports banker back then was right. He says, "Hey, these are kind of like, uh, you know, country clubs. If you never show up, you will never feel comfortable with that group." But if you show up, it's like a country club. You start to know everyone, and, and it's your happy place. Yeah, um, yeah. And, of course, I happen to live in L.A., so we try to make a point to go to every single LAFC game. Um, and through that, you get to know the people, you know all the, the employees, and you're you're in the know, right? Yeah, so yeah. that's when it's a little more fun. Do you um, see yourself in the future taking that next step to being a, like a, a primary owner or managing partner kind of guy on a, on a team in the future? Well, uh, it depends on how I do with my uh, my businesses. <laughs> <laughs> These are not cheap hobbies, as you know. Yeah, that's true. So back to your back to your businesses. So from what I understand, so you have kind of a unique model. How would you describe your role when you when you go through these? You're kind of co-founding, investing, operating, but not necessarily the primary operator. It's like a kind of an interesting. Um, but you know, you're there at the creation. Versus like right. investing in something else. How would you describe your your model? I think I think I have a pretty interesting approach in that. Obviously, the version of me right now uh, is not working for salary, right? And I can't pay for someone who's you know competent and who can execute a lot of division. So you know. In Juval, at Juval, my partner and I kind of started it. We seeded a little bit. Then we quickly brought on someone else to run it. And when that business got to like $30 million, that partner was no longer kind of organized enough to take it to a different, a next level. So we hired another guy who was an, an ex-employee who took over the CEO role for the company that we sold. You know, so we brought him back, you know, 10 years later or something like that. He, and he's been running our business since. I'm just thinking about another business I created called uh, Kitchen United, which which is in the uh, uh, ghost kitchen space. Um, kind of the same, you know. We started it, seeded it, hired someone very competent to come in, and immediately was able to execute. Sit on the board for both of them. You're very informed, but not day to day. And I kind of yeah. like that, you know, because you know I think it would be hard for you, Nick, to go to work eight ten. 12, 14 hours a, a day now, right? Having had the lifestyle that you have, to go back to that is quite challenging. But if you put yourself in a situation where you can have a lot of influence on what's done uh, without having to do the, uh, the, the, the 95, that is a pretty good uh, setup. Yeah, no, I've, and it's taken me a while, but I found that I think that like, I almost saw it as like there was um, certain badges of honor that you had to have, you know. And so then I realized in the end, it's like, no, I think I'm, I think I'm really good at coming up with ideas. I think I'm really good at like getting kind of something that was just an idea, presenting it in a way where it's like a 
uh, something that has a chance to be a company or an opportunity. But it is really hard, I think, as an entrepreneur to um, to kind of define that role. So when I see yours, it makes me think like I really want to get to the point where I'm defining my you know how I want how I want this to work because then it becomes easy to repl- not easy, easier to replicate. Um, it sets the expectations for everyone, kind of empowers the people to you know here's how you can you know you you can run this thing, you can operate it, and here's how I'll provide feedback in that. But it's um, well, I think I think I think like you, you know, you if you were to start a business right now, it would not be hard for you to hire someone who's experienced, competent at the right age, who's willing to follow you purely because you, you, you're the founder of Zappos, right? No. But if you didn't have that on your resume, it would be hard to convince. But, yeah. you know, we're, we're both in a place where I think we have some credibility. Like you said, we have the badge of honor, you know, people are, will, are willing to follow us. Yeah. Now it's interesting. And it's funny responsibility there too, because you, to the other, the other end of the spectrum, you, you at times attract people who think you have all the answers, right? And so they're kind of coming in and they're like, cool, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to do it? When do you want me to do it? Teach me everything. So and it's like, it's like kind of a, you know, it takes a while to kind of, to, to, to get through that and find the people you've, you learn that you actually want the person who, who is more independent, not really that impressed with what you've done in the past and just looking for an opportunity where, so it's a, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think it's, I think it's also interesting that, you know, you keep doing things. Um, Cause that's the same as me, right? Like it's, I, as much as I joked that it's funny that you, you retired for a second. It's hard, you know, you, you do sit around and you go, what, like, it wasn't, a, it wasn't like this goal, even though it might've seemed like it in the beginning, it wasn't this goal of like, get X amount of dollars so that you can do something totally different for the rest of your life. Right. It's like get X amount of dollars or get, you know, build this company. Oh, this company came with X amount of dollars. Now I can do whatever I want with the rest of my life. Wait, but I want to keep starting companies, the same thing, you know, so then it's, I think it's kind of exciting when you, when you, uh, when you realize that. And I, I think once you're a builder, you're, you're always a builder, right? You enjoy that process. Um, for me, I think, I think there's a little bit of a desire to prove that the first time was not a fluke, right? Yeah, you would be able to up, build something up again and say like, well, Zappos was not a fluke. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's kind of what's driving me. And, yeah. And I think, I don't know about for you, but for me, that was, I started a company the day I left Zappos. And then I stuck with that company, primarily self-funding, even though, even though the vision changed, my perspective on it changed, it turned to be more of a manufacturing company than a creative company. And I just, I kind of knew that like, in that particular instance, this wasn't what I thought it was. And it was costing me a lot of money. But it was that like, I want to prove to everyone that I wasn't a one hit wonder. I want to prove to people that I can do this. That was one of the most expensive lessons I've learned because I just kept going and going and turn, twisting and turning. And then, and eventually it was just like so freeing when you finally decided don't do that. And you realize nobody gives a shit, you know, like, <laughs> like I stopped doing it and nobody cares. And nobody said, ha ha, told you, you suck. And it was like, wait, oh my God, why didn't I realize this a while ago? That's the same as my love and experience writing checks and it was no longer fun, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally sitting there going, hey, this doesn't make any sense. We're going to need this much money. And even that's not going to be enough to accomplish what we need. Um, okay, cool. Let's do it. <laughs> it was just like, but that it was, a, I think once you get through that, and, it, and from, I think that's a fairly common theme for people that have, um, you know, a relatively big success, especially early where you haven't even really reconciled like, how much of this was luck? How much of this was timing? How much of this was something I actually did? How much of it was, you know, what everyone else did? It was like very, it's very hard to process um, in the short term. And then, but once you get through that, then I thought it was so empowering because you realize, wait, like I, I'm the one that cares. Nobody else cares. Nobody's looking at me thinking, I wonder what he's doing. I wonder how he's doing. Nobody's grading me or judging me. And so then it kind of lets you, uh, you know, it, it lets you relax for a minute. But then it's kind of like exciting. It's like, wait, so I'm the one, like, you know, now you know you're doing it because you want to do it and, and, and you can do it. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I, you probably don't. Whenever I walk by a mirror, I mean, I'm just giving myself a pep talk or, you know, tearing myself <laughs> down a little bit. You know, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm doing that more and more as I get older, like just like getting, getting excited of like, and my son looks at me like I'm crazy, you know, because it's almost like I'm a, 
it's almost like I'm a, walking around the house like I'm a boxer or a fighter that just want to fight sometimes because I'm just <laughs> I'm just psyching myself up. But really, what I'm saying is like, oh, this is like anything is possible. I you know I get a chance to do this. Come on, let's go, let's get moving. That's funny. Um, but it's funny how that uh, this is the downside to entrepreneurship, I think. And and you know, for every successful company, there's a lot of companies that don't succeed. And I think one thing that's kind of like not talked about a lot is the effects that has on people. Once you start connecting your yourself and your self-esteem to a company, I mean, it's really hard. And you hear about, you know, you know, some really unfortunate situations, but there's, I think, a lot more people that are just scarred from that first thing and they just don't know what to do or had a success and, and feel that pressure and are either paralyzed by it or can't change motion. So that's why I think it's always exciting and inspiring to see people that just keep doing things. Um, and keep trying things and, and understand that it's a, you know, it's also why I think, you know, people that are happy to talk about things that didn't work and did work, you know, instead of uh, that, then, you know, okay, they've got to the point now where they just see, these are all just steps towards another success. These are just things that happen. It's not um, things we have to gloss over. So what, uh, so what's, what's next? Are you going to, you got any more, any more ideas that are, you're about to get started on, or are you going to see these current ones through? I I am super focused on Kitchen United and Juvel Plus, and I'm going to have to grow them. Yeah. So Juvel yeah, Plus, like, how did you get that? How what? How did you come up with a name that had a plus sign on the end? <laughs> Funny, you should ask, because <laughs> the prior name of that business was Get Ready for It. Juvolicious. <laughs> so it totally sounds like a name that you make up in like two minutes, maybe while you were sucking a lollipop. You say, hmm, I wonder what the business name should be. Who cares what the name is on Amazon? And we called it Juvolicious. And uh, it was just a little bit too, uh, a little too cute for us as we uh, grew to, to a, a more serious business. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, Juvo wasn't available, so Juvo Plus. There you go. Nice. All right, so before we get into your uh, your professional karaoke training, um, oh, no. what, with your experience, what advice would you give to young entrepreneurs today looking to get started? Okay, well, this is this is uh, pretty easy because I, I actually went, I've thought a lot about this. Uh, I gave a speech at Cambridge once. And, you know, this is one of the, the, those questions. The thing that I always tell people is businesses take longer to build. They're more costly to build than you think. And they probably will not work out as, as well as you think. So my advice to everyone is work on it. Despite what everybody says about you got to give it a fair shake and you got to give it 100%. That to me is all BS. Start when you are... When you have a job, when you have a steady income, do it at nights and weekends because you never know how this new venture is going to go, right? And if you get yourself in a situation where you don't have income, then there's going to be so much stress on you where you can't do a good job in that business anyway. So, so yeah, don't quit your job. Do it on the side until it's got two legs to stand on by itself. So that would be my number one advice. And what about... What about a young person not looking to start a company, but looking to add value to a to an existing startup? But they and they may not have experience. How would you? What advice would you give them? Well, I think it's always good to find someone who has complementary skill sets, right? Because not everybody is an entrepreneur, right? In my in the company that I sold, there were probably three people that knew the ins and outs of that business. The three of them could have come together and said, okay, we're going to replicate this. We're just, going to, we're just going to carbon copy this business and do it on ourselves. But they didn't, right? Because they're not programmed to do that. They're not comfortable with risk, right? So for someone who's not an entrepreneur, but who wants to contribute, I would just say, hey, look around. Look, at pe- look around you and see if you can find someone who has some traits that you wish you had, Right. And talk about ideas and maybe maybe work together, collaborate, or find a business that seems to have the same kind of ideologies as you, right? Something that you're passionate about. And they'll, they'll you know, be a team player. All right. So uh, that 
remind me of another question, which which I think actually comes up more often than you would ever imagine it comes up, is there's a lot of young people that are trying to figure out if they're entrepreneurs. How, If you're a young person trying to decide, am I an entrepreneur? Should I be an entrepreneur? How would you tell them to figure that out? So you often ask, you, you know, if you sit with someone who thinks they're an entrepreneur and you say, you know, this is really hard. This 24-7, without holidays, weekends, et cetera. You got to work your ass off. And their answer is always, yeah, I can do that, right? I can do that until your friends start calling you on Friday afternoon and say, hey, you want to you come to a, a, to a nightclub with me? Or you want to drink? Or you want to go party? You want to go to Vegas, right? And then you realize, oh, you know, my priorities are wrong. I am not able to do it 24-7. I am not willing to dedicate, right, my entire life to do this. And I think like, yeah, you know, hard work doesn't guarantee success, but the lack of hard work almost guarantees failure, right? You just cannot do nothing. And yeah. trust me, I have met plenty of people who says they're willing and they, they want to do it. They just can't do it. You know, I was just in my office this morning talking to a uh, an employee and I was telling her, boy, you know, all these years in business, I hate because we just came out of the 4th of July holiday, right? Yeah. I was telling her, like, I hate holidays and weekends. She's like, why? He's like, well, that's when nobody's working and there's no revenue, you know, revenue is much lower. You know, <laughs> and it's been ingrained in my head for 20 years. So, yeah, I, I can't stand holidays. What? A, so, so not being able to stand holidays, you, you revealed prior to the show that during quarantine, you had a singing coach to improve your karaoke abilities. Yes. When does this ha- I mean, when does this happen? This has got to happen on, does this happen on weeknights? This happened before. So the night that Gavin Newsom instituted the stay at home order, I don't know if you remember that day. I think it was March, March 11th, 11th, March 19th, yeah. March 19th, 20, what was it? 2020. I heard about it around like 6 p.m. I booked my flights at seven. I was out the door with my entire family at nine and we were on a plane at 11 PM and we headed off to Taiwan. Yeah. Um, there was no I remember that cause you were like, you were like business as usual. We were like on lockdown over here. That's right. I didn't know what stay at home order meant, right? Like nobody knew. Like yeah. I, I was so worried. Like it would be at Wuhan lockdown. Like, in California. I was like, I don't want any part of that. I'm getting out of here. So I went with the intent of my laugh. My, my wife, my wife laughs at me still all the time because I remember getting there and calling the travel agent and booking a return flight for two weeks later. Right. And, uh, of course, you know, I ended up staying 400 days. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You did stay there for you, yeah, 400 days and your kids did school. Your kids did, remote school in LA on like your reverse schedule, right? Like they did their school uh, in the middle of the night. That was brutal. They, their classes began at midnight Taiwan time, which is 8 p.m. I'm sorry, 8 a.m. Pacific. Yeah. And it went from midnight to about 6 a.m. Um, <laughs> so that, that was really tough. It was more manageable for my twins who were seniors in high school. But for my ninth grader, it was tough. Yeah. So uh, we we had to enroll her in a in a different program for half a year. So you saw you saw your kids you know working hard in class in the middle of the night. You decided I want to I want to uh, take a class that'll help me do something in the middle of the night as well. No 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 I was not taking my singing class in the middle of the night. I was uh, I was asleep every night. <laughs> uh, so I started having these karaoke lessons before I moved to Taiwan. Yeah. And uh, once I got there, you know. California was basically locked down. I wanted to make sure that the instructor still had a steady you know, income. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, let me keep taking these lessons. And it just went on and on and on and on. And I think I ended up taking it for a year. Well, wow. 400 days until I came back. I didn't do it every day. I did it once a week. Um, what was your, what was your, uh, what is your go-to song that you? Oh, please. A lot of Chinese songs. Ed Sheeran. So the coach, oh. like, what does the karaoke coach do? It just like teaches you how to sing high notes and different things. And it is so bizarre. Like for twenty minutes, you're warming up, 
right? <laughs> and then you do, like, she tries to break your voice, right? You go really high where you're, like, you're cracking. You're like, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is actually kind of funny. But, <laughs> but with that, over time, you realize that you're able to hit the high notes. Huh. You know, and, and, and one of the reasons I started that was I, I got to know a guy who actually enjoyed singing, and I just find it to be a, a fascinating fascinating hobby. You know, yeah. that you know, like men in America usually don't sing or yeah. don't sing karaoke, but that's actually a pretty common uh, thing in Asia. Yeah. And every single time when I've been back to Asia, we would go to a karaoke and my, my friends would sing and I would just sit there doing nothing. That's funny. So I, thought, I, I told myself, you know what, I'm going to learn five, ten songs, my go-to songs, and then uh, I won't have to just sit and do nothing. I've so. been trying to figure out an instrument to play, and I keep staring at a ukulele and never playing it. So maybe I'll, maybe singing would be the answer. I wouldn't have to practice as much. You well, maybe I would to. if I have to do 400 days of lessons. But and Your instrument is your vocal cords. True. So it's, qu- it's quite fun if you do it once or twice. Yeah. Try it out. Any, uh, any business opportunities? Are you going to open a karaoke bar one day? <laughs> no. <laughs> cool well i think this was a uh, i think this is a lot of fun we do have the final question which is for those listeners that took the time to you know listen to the entire episode if you could spend the day with one athlete or entrepreneur who would it be and why i think i would love to sit with elon musk for a whole day i think this guy is fascinating i think he is the einstein of our generation I would love to sit with him and just figure out how he's thinking uh, because I'm, I'm a Tesla lover. I just got my fifth model S. Um, wow. it's, it's insane. I've looked at all kinds of other options because I didn't want to get a fifth model S, but at the end of the day, I still can't find anything that's remotely close to it. Uh, I was able to invest a little bit into SpaceX like 10 years ago. Uh, so I've been, uh, I've been a fanboy of it. Would you go to space? Never. I mean, yeah, never. I, I would It's like a terrible idea. You can pay me and I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Cool. Well, that was fun. You know, we've known each other for a long time, but I, I didn't really know a lot of these backstories. So it was interesting to hear that perspective and, I think it would definitely be interesting to listeners. And yeah, maybe we'll, uh, maybe, we'll maybe, maybe we do some shows together. I would love to uh, learn more about your backstories. Well, maybe, that, maybe that can be another episode. Yeah. A cool. future date. Thanks. So.